Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to episode three of Hot and Bothered, a new podcast on the politics of climate change for the 99%. As always, we're hosted by Descent Magazine. And in case you missed our earlier episodes, you can check them out at descentmagazine.org. We're also on the iTunes store and at Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter. Tweet us your feedback, your comments, your angry denialist rants, your thoughts on vocal fry to hashtag hotbotheredclimate. This month, Daniel is talking to Michael Mann, one of the world's top climate scientists. We'll hear from him about what's behind these tipping points everyone keeps talking about the day after tomorrow and how to talk to people about climate change. And after that, we'll get a quick report back from the People's Summit, which happened out in Chicago in June. Kate talked to filmmaker Josh Fox about fracking and whether it's worth throwing the Democratic Party out with the climate-complacent establishment bathwater. That is a mouthful. Now, Daniel, you've got a bit of a life update for our listeners. Is that right? I do. Uh, So I just finished my PhD in sociology uh, at NYU. So I'm a doctor now, wearing my lab coat here in the studio. Uh, And as I've mentioned before, I'll be teaching at the University of Pennsylvania starting this fall, but racing back to the city all the time to record this podcast. Your diligence is appreciated, but big congratulations. So it sounds like you've got one last thing to be hot and bothered about now that you've finished your dissertation. Can you remind us what that's about again? Uh, Sure. Yeah. If you just give me a few hours, I'll be happy to fill you in on just all the nuanced findings. How about Um, the Cliff Notes version? (laughs) Well, the Cliff Notes version is that it's about cities and climate politics and social movements. And uh, we're going to devote an episode to cities and climate change in August. So maybe I will uh, say a little more then. Can't wait. But do I have to call you a doctor every time I address you now? Totally up to you. Jury's out. So given that we talk so much about uh, the climate movement and policy on this podcast, it might seem a little strange for us to bring in a scientist, but we did think it was important to explore some of the nuances of the scientific debate, especially around something as important as so-called tipping points or feedback mechanisms, uh, the kind of thing that, you know, really is what makes this whole issue so dangerous. Kate, I know you're a big fan of poetry, so you won't be disappointed to know that Even in the most intense scientific discussion, metaphors remain utterly inevitable. So as we kind of lead into this conversation with Michael Mann, a bit more about who he is, he's one of the country's leading climate scientists. He's best known for work that demonstrated for the first time that by the mid-2000s, the world was hotter than it had been for at least a millennium. Uh, He visualized this with the famous uh, hockey stick graph. Hockey stick? Daniel, are you just trying to talk about Canada again? I mean, we spent so much time talking about Canada in our last show. And not that it's not important, but... Well, yeah, okay. So (laughs) uh, we can talk about... You know, I actually have a separate podcast on Canada, um, which I'll be launching shortly. But anyway, so yeah, the graph looks like a hockey stick. Cold and apologetic. It's like a hockey stick on its side or on its back. Uh, And it basically looks like that because temperature oscillates, uh, you know, a certain amount uh, over the last thousand years. But it really starts shooting up uh, a couple of centuries ago. And it's that rise and rise where it eventually exceeds all the kind of historic record of the past thousand years that really visualizes what's unique and special about this moment and indicates that, indeed, there is something different happening here, a.k.a. humans causing climate change by burning uh, fossil fuels. So that finding in that graph put Michael really in the crosshairs of the fossil fuel funded Uh, denial machine. 
And in defending his reputation and defending his work, Michael has actually become one of the most prominent communicators of climate science and the public debate, in addition to one of the most prominent scientists. And just to say a little bit more about Michael, he is the author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines, and he's a co-author of Dire Predictions, an illustrated guide to the findings of the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and of the forthcoming book in fall of 2016 called The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. Michael Mann is the Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University and the Director of the Penn State Earth Systems Science Center. Here he is. So, uh, Michael, it's great to have you on Hot and Bothered. Um, we had uh, Bill McKibben on a few, a few weeks ago, and I thought of him as kind of one of the original Hot and Bothered activists. Uh, what stands out to me about you is you're one of the scientists who's actually got climate denialists really hot and bothered. So I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, just before we delve into some of the science, do you think that we've at this point passed peak denialism, the period where politics are just dominated by people attacking the science? Well, you know, I think there is a uh, small but very vocal fringe of climate change deniers uh, and their voice and their level of apparent numbers is way out of proportion, in, in my view, with their actual numbers. They have been very effective, but uh, I think it's becoming increasingly marginalized. I think it's becoming increasingly irrelevant. Uh, I think that uh, most uh, serious participants um, in this discussion recognize uh, the evidence that climate change is real and that it's human caused. And so my view is, yeah, we'll continue to have climate change deniers as long as we have fossil fuels and fossil fuel interests trying to, um, to, to extract and, and sell those fossil fuels. That having been said, I think the rest of society, the rest of the people, uh, the rest of the business world, uh, everybody else is going to move on, uh, and they will become increasingly irrelevant again in the serious uh, discussion about climate change and what to do about it. In your book, you also talk about this kind of peak, the sort of the ladder, sorry, a ladder of denial and the way that kind of further up the ladder you get to a different idea, which is not that the science is wrong, but that it's kind of too late or there's nothing that can be done. And I, I think that for some who are open to the science, one of the ideas that, and I want to really dig into this uh, on the show, one of the ideas that feeds into this notion that it's all kind of too late is the notion of runaway climate change. Um, so it's a, it's a very compelling metaphor and it, you know, the other words that get thrown around are like tipping point or feedback mechanism. And just for listeners who maybe don't really know what the metaphor refers to in scientific terms, and those, those words call up more like Malcolm Gladwell or a PA system than the science. Like, what's the basic idea here with a tipping point or a feedback mechanism and things kind of running away or getting out of control? Yeah, so there is some underlying science here um, that suggests that there are so-called tipping points in the climate system, which is to say that once we warm the climate uh, a certain amount, uh, we trigger certain changes that are essentially irreversible, at least on human timescales, uh, once we trigger the melting of the major ice sheets. The West Antarctic ice sheet is the part of the Antarctic ice sheet most vulnerable to warming, uh, the Greenland ice sheet. Once we trigger uh, the loss of ice from those two ice sheets, uh, there's essentially nothing we can do to stop it. Um, even if we were to cool the climate back down somehow, 
um, that those processes have a certain amount of momentum and they feed back on themselves and they will continue uh, even if we were able to do that. So that is uh, one of the worries um, is that uh, the more we warm the climate, the more of these potential tipping points we cross. Uh, many uh, sort of uh, climate uh, change um, uh, activists, uh, there are many in sort of uh, that uh, community who I think have a somewhat skewed sense of this notion of tipping points. Uh, tipping points do uh, exist. There isn't any one tipping point. It isn't like there's a certain amount of warming that once we uh, achieve that, we, we pass some tipping point for the global climate. That's not the way it works. There are different subsystems of the climate, and each of them may have their, its own thresholds. Uh, each of them may have their own thresholds. Uh, the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet, the melting of the Greenland ice sheet, the shutdown of the so-called conveyor belt ocean circulation, um, which would uh, actually lead to cooling in some parts of the North Atlantic, uh, potentially abruptly. We've seen that happen in the paleoclimate record, and there's some uh, indication that that could happen if we melt enough ice fast enough. Um, there are all these different components that behave in this threshold-like manner, that once you warm the climate a certain amount, uh, you set in motion some very substantial, abrupt shift in that component of the climate uh, that, again, is irreversible on human timescales. Um, some of those tipping points we may have already passed. Uh, many of those other tipping points we probably have not yet passed. And the more we warm the climate, the more likely it is that we cross more and more of these thresholds where we lock in uh, increased amounts of future sea level rise, where we uh, lock in uh, fundamental shifts in uh, the behavior of the jet stream, for example, or the ocean circulation. What you sometimes hear um, from, again, sort of some of the activists uh, in the climate change discourse is this notion that oh, we've already passed this tipping point, or we're going to pass this tipping point no matter what we do, uh, so we might as well give up on the problem. There's nothing we can do to stop climate change. It's just simply wrong. Um, if you look at what the best available science has to say, uh, the fact is that, yes, we've already locked in a certain amount of warming and, and future warming just from the carbon we've already burned, and there are some damaging impacts that we're already seeing from that. Uh, whether it's the drought in California, which likely bears the fingerprint of human-caused climate change, the extreme heat uh, we're seeing uh, around the world, um, unprecedented flooding events. Um, there are many pretty profound uh, changes in our weather and climate that are having a negative impact on us now that are already there. We're already there. We're already seeing these damaging impacts. But if you look sort of across the board at all of the collective impacts that climate change uh, could have on, you know, on water, on, on land uh, availability, on human health, on food availability, on our economy and national security. Across the board, if you look at all of the different uh, sort of metrics of climate change impact and you talk to the scientists who study them, they'll tell you that 
we can still we can still avoid the worst uh, potential impacts if we keep warming below uh, somewhere in the range of two degrees Celsius. That's three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, roughly. And we can still do that. We could still ramp down our burning of fossil fuels um, and shift away from fossil fuel burning to uh, other uh, renewable and green sources of energy. Um, we could almost certainly do that in time to avoid crossing that threshold of two degrees Celsius warming that many uh, view as where we see uh, the most damaging impacts of climate change. Now, mind you, this isn't actually a tipping point. That two degrees Celsius isn't a tipping point. Um, it isn't like a cliff that we go off after two degrees Celsius warming. It's much more like an ever downsloping highway. And the further we go down that highway, uh, the sh sharper and sharper um, the downturn and the more dangerous it becomes. And obviously what we want to do is take the soonest available exit off that highway. Right. So the two degrees, right, that's a we're talking about probability. So two degrees is where the odds of some of these other thresholds, biophysical thresholds, the odds of us crossing them are kind of increasing. Absolutely. And with each, you know, fraction of a degree that we warm the climate, the odds become greater and greater that we see. Um, you know, damaging and potentially irreversible impacts. Um, again, food, water, health, uh, what have you. Um, so I think one of, again, one of the more uh, dangerous notions that one sees out there among, you know, those who actually are on the side of accepting the science, uh, accepting that it's a problem, um, but they uh, have somehow come to believe that uh, it is a hopeless problem and that there's nothing we can do uh, to avert uh, catastrophic climate change. And that's, you know, that's a viewpoint that leads you down a very dangerous path of inaction and in inadvertently um, serving the agenda of the uh, inactivists, uh, if you will. Uh, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry, um, I'm sure, is delighted with those uh, who argue that there's nothing we can do about climate change, so we might as well not uh, change our behavior. Um, my guess is that fossil fuel interests are perfectly happy <laughs> with, with that line of thinking because it once again uh, grants them license uh, to continue operating and, and grants us license to continue in our addiction to fossil fuels. So, no, I think that... Um, uh, Denial of the solutions, denial that there is any hope to solving this problem is as dangerous as outright denial that climate change exists in, in some ways. Yeah, I, I mean, this, it's a great answer. And so many of my friends, uh, many of them are very politically active in other causes. Um, when I tell them that I work on climate politics, that's what my research is about. The first thing they say either is, are we screwed or we're screwed, right? <laughs> And it is, yeah, it is disabling. And in a way, it almost is a way to just channel that activism somewhere else. Um, and so it's not even in cases where people are highly motivated to to, to be politically involved. Uh, I think this issue is kind of scary. And I guess what's troubling is that science becomes the excuse to do nothing because it's like, oh, well, the science is just so, so dire. No, that, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I, 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 I I think that um, it's an understandable <laughs> human response to look at a problem. You know, when we do this uh, every day in our, you know, in our daily lives, um, we confront challenges that seem insurmountable um, and seem hopeless. And it's so 
much easier uh, in that case to, to just deny the problem, to move on to something else, to move on to more fertile you know, pastures, to other problems where we feel like we can actually make some headway in solving these problems. So uh, I, I do think that that is uh, the potential danger that people become convinced that, hey, you know, climate change, it's, there's nothing we can do about it. So let's, let's focus on all these other problems that we might be able to do something about. Uh, overfishing, uh, habitat loss, um, uh, destruction of our environment. Uh, well, it turns out that all of these other problems are being made worse by climate change. So if you don't solve the climate change problem, you're actually not going to solve any of these other problems. But there's this fallacy that, hey, you know, this climate change, this problem's hopeless. Uh, why don't I turn my attention to, to other areas where, you know, my efforts might uh, bear fruit? Uh, and, and I do think that that's dangerous um, uh, thinking. And it's thinking that to some extent, I think, has been fostered by the sort of climate change denial machine. In, in the end, and you, you referred to the, the, the various stages of denial, which is a, you know, is a, a metaphor that we use in, in our book. Um, well, the, you know, in the end, fossil fuel interests don't really care what your reason is for denial, uh, whether it's that you reject the science out of hand or you think that there's a human uh, role in global warming, but it's minor, or you, know, you don't think it's minor. You think uh, humans are having uh, a substantial impact on the climate, but hey, maybe it's good for us. <laughs> maybe a warmer climate will be better for us. Uh, warmer winters, um, and, and so on. There are any number of, of false <laughs> you know, reasons uh, to reject, uh, any number of myths on which one can uh, base the, the notion that, um, you know, that, that we don't need to act. Um, and that's all you know, the, the forces of denial really care about. They don't care what your reason for an action is what your justify uh, your, your justification for an action. As long as there is not action for whatever reason, as long as the status quo continues, uh, the fossil fuel interests are perfectly happy. And so I think to some extent they sort of stood back and and laughed a little bit um, and grinned uh, as they've seen this infighting within uh, the the sort of community of people who accept the science of climate change, uh, but vary in their optimism and their willingness to believe that it's a problem we can solve. I think they stand back and they watch that debate and they relish it because it serves their agenda, nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I guess just to point out, so that some of the other political engagements, of course, are around issues of social and economic justice. And again, there too, right, the people who will suffer the most in the short term, medium term, long term are racially, economically disadvantaged uh, people all over the world, and then both in the rich world and in the and then the poorer parts of the world. So I just, I just want to run through if maybe just a couple of these tipping points kind of quickly that have gotten a lot of attention or that I've seen quite a bit about. So one thing that I find surfaces, it, it's not a constant topic like rising sea level, but every time it comes up, it is extremely catastrophic. And it's the issue of the, the so-called methane bomb uh, in the tundra. Um, so the notion, right, that once the tundra melts, it contains a huge amount of methane, that that would then sort of belch out all in one shot and have this huge warming shock. So I'm wondering, I guess just a sort of quick two-part question is, you know, to what what, what is this, the science, uh, the, the kind of consensus or the kind of cutting-edge view of that particular problem? And is it one of the tipping points or thresholds that is that is relatively close to us here? 
Yeah, so it's uh, a valid concern. Uh, it is a, a potential threshold that we uh, know about. Um, in fact, it falls into a broader uh, group of, of, of feedback processes uh, that we call carbon cycle feedbacks. Um, it's a fancy term that just says, hey, hey, as we warm the climate, we can destabilize other greenhouse gases like methane that are currently locked up in, in polar ice um, along the coastal shelves of the continents. Um, and so if the warming leads to a release of uh, methane and CO2 that had previously been buried within the climate system and that CO2 and methane makes it back into the atmosphere, well, then uh, it's a vicious cycle. Then it causes even more warming and even more destabilization of those um, you know, currently uh, buried uh, greenhouse gases. And it's what we call a positive feedback, but it's not a good thing, despite the name. Um, it's a vicious cycle, and it amplifies the warming. It means the warming feeds back on itself, and you get even more warming than if that destabilization hadn't happened. Um, now, there um, is a, a sort of a, a wide range of viewpoints that one hears about the potential role of these feedbacks, and in particular, as you note, the, the potential role of methane that is currently frozen in the permafrost, in the tundra, and could be released into the atmosphere. Um, at sort of one end of the spectrum, um, and I would say it's sort of at, this, at the end of the spectrum of valid scientific thinking is the idea that there's a huge methane bomb that we're you know, very close to crossing this threshold and it would release huge amounts of methane that would warm the climate even more than the CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere from fossil fuel burning. The science just does not justify that viewpoint. If you take a sober look at the best available science, as summarized in the, the most recent report, for example, of the uh, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, uh, it's fairly clear that the primary source of warming now and for many decades to come will be the CO2 that we continue to release from fossil fuel burning. Now, it's possible that there is enough destabilization of, of methane um, that it could add to the warming, but it's not going to double the warming. It's not going to triple the warming. Again, the science doesn't seem to justify that. Uh, the science doesn't indicate that there's enough uh, frozen methane that could be mobilized um, by near-term warming to do anything like that. Uh, so the truth, in my view, is... Uh, in between the sort of endpoints of the discussion, uh, those who say methane isn't a problem at all, and those who say methane is the whole problem, uh, you know, and the methane bomb is the one, the thing we really have to be focused on. Yes, uh, these feedbacks, these carbon cycle feedbacks, are likely to amplify warming beyond what it would have been if we had hadn't considered them. So it's an important part of the discussion. It's important that the scientific community has recognized that there are these other feedbacks, these carbon cycle feedbacks that hadn't really been taken into account properly in much of the past work that are likely to add to the warming and not in a trivial way. Um, so we need to take that into account. We need to be thinking about the potential surprises. We need to be thinking about those aspects of the science where there's still enough uncertainty that we could be surprised and not in a good way. Um, if you look at sort of the history of the science, the surprises have tended to be bad surprises. Um, things have often faster 
than the models had predicted. Um, and so it's important to keep in, in mind, uh, especially as we talk about the importance of mitigation, of, 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 of curtailing the burning of fossil fuels, as we talk about the potential damage that climate change is causing and will cause in the future if we don't act, it is very important to think about these sort of extreme uh, scenarios, these worst case scenarios, uh, the scenario where, you know, there is enough methane to, you know, add you know, at least 50% more warming. Um, we need to be thinking about these worst case scenarios because that's, you know, if you talk to economists uh, about sort of how you do a proper full cost accounting and how you do cost benefit analysis, uh, they'll tell you that you have to worry about situations where you have what's uh, called a, a heavy tail in the probability distribution. So you talked about the probabilities before that, you know, as we warm the climate, you know, there may be 20% uh, probability of, of this impact happening and 30% uh, probability of this impact happening for two degrees warming. And, and those probabilities increase as you increase the warming. Um, well, it turns out that with many of the potential impacts of climate change, there's enough uncertainty out there that we can't rule out the possibility that the changes and the resulting impacts are much, much worse than the models currently predict. And yeah, we call and that a heavy tail because it just means there's a, there's a, a distinct possibility of, of changes and impacts that are way out there at the extreme edges of the probability distribution that you would normally uh, dismiss if you were thinking about typical probability distributions like the normal distribution, the bell curve, but you have more of that potential for extreme events in the estimated distribution of climate change impacts. Yeah, and um, you actually, I think that's one of the the great moments in your book on the the hockey stick controversy, as you say, you know, early on in your career, people said, "Well, but what if it's what if climate change isn't as bad as some are saying?" And you say, "But I would always gently reply, but it's you know, it could go the other way as well. Or, you know, what if it's even worse?" That's right. And if it is uh, worse, then the cost is far far greater than the cost that you would have borne for, say, having acted when it might not have been necessary. <laughs> the the cost of making the mistake of um, not acting when it is necessary is far greater than the potential cost of acting um, in the eventuality where it turns out maybe it wasn't necessary. Now, I want to ask just about one other kind of, maybe not as one threshold, but a kind of group of thresholds, I guess, which is the ocean system. And I think we're hearing a lot about sea level rise. I've seen a lot about this notion that the West Antarctic ice sheet has probably melted to a certain extent, locking us in. Uh, to a certain number of feet. Uh, obviously, none of this is exact in terms of what we can predict. Um, and then along with the melting ice, there's this idea, right, that the kind of great conveyor belts that circulate water are going to shift. That the I think you referred to this earlier, the basically the warming currents that, you know, basically warm northern Europe uh, could be sort of shut off. So I'm wondering you know, how much certainty or uncertainty do we have in terms of this whole series of dynamics in the ocean system, which, again, when you hear about them in the press, you tend to get very simplified sort of scares. But what, you know, what's the kind of state of thinking here um, on, on, you know, how much do we know? How clearly do we know it? Yeah, uh, well, there, there's still a fair amount of uncertainty. But in both of those cases, uh, there's a very clear indication of how uncertainty is not our friend. Um, so let's take the issue of the melting of land ice, uh, the, the ice sheets, uh, the Greenland ice sheet, the Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, 
over the last, even over the last year, um, we have learned quite a bit um, about the potential for a large and fairly rapid loss of large amounts of, uh, you know, of ice loss and fairly rapid ice loss uh, from the West Antarctic ice sheet, where the latest available scientific research published in the leading journals like Nature um, indicates that we can no longer rule out the scenario of, say, as much as two meters of sea level rise uh, by the end of this century, six, more than six feet of sea level rise. And just you know, a couple of years ago, if you looked at what the latest IPCC report had to say, you would have been led to believe that uh, you know three feet or so is the maximum amount of sea level we could likely uh, see by the end of the century. Well, as climate modelers uh, have uh, begun to incorporate in a more faithful way some of the important physics of how ice sheets collapse, uh, what they've learned is that it could happen faster than we thought before. And again, the bottom line, we can't rule out six feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. That would be catastrophic. Uh, we saw what the effect of one foot of sea level rise was on the damage, the destruction done by uh, Superstorm Sandy. Uh, there was 20, more than 25 square miles of additional flooding, uh, several billion dollars of additional damage due simply to the fact that sea level was a foot higher than it was before we started burning fossil fuels and warming the climate. So if that's what one foot does, just imagine what six feet does. At six feet of sea level rise, uh, you're talking about um, retreat from our coastlines. We're literally uh, migrating away from some of the largest cities of the world as they become inundated um, and the, by you know, a combination of uh, sea level rise and potentially more damaging tropical storms, hurricanes, typhoons. Um, so that's with respect to ice loss. Um, the problem, increasingly, as we begin to resolve some of the uncertainty, we're learning that the problem, by some measures, was worse than we thought you know, just a few years ago. With the collapse of the so-called conveyor belt ocean circulation, um, this is the scenario behind the movie The Day After Tomorrow, where the Gulf Stream, what we sometimes call the Gulf Stream, technically speaking, it isn't really the Gulf Stream, it's the part of the Gulf Stream that branches off, continues on into the North Atlantic, heads up off towards uh, Iceland and Europe. Um, and that warm current help keeps, helps keep the uh, northern latitudes of the North Atlantic, um, Europe, uh, Greenland, parts of North America, uh, warmer than they would otherwise be. And it's a potential tipping point. Uh, we've known that for more than half a century, actually. Some of the simplest models more than a half a century ago, predicted that this ocean conveyor belt circulation system uh, indicated the physics supports tipping point-like behavior, where you melt just enough ice and suddenly it transitions very dramatically and rapidly from a vigorous conveyor like we have today that delivers lots of heat poleward into the North Atlantic. Well, it, it essentially can shut down um, almost overnight, very rapidly on climatic timescales. And the worry is if that were to happen, um, then you would get some very dramatic and rapid impacts on climate change. Nothing like the movie The Day After Tomorrow. That movie's completely unrealistic. Yeah, even the acting isn't even good, to be honest. <laughs> the acting isn't good. The script isn't very good. I actually read it. I was asked to read a copy of the script uh, be before the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, was was produced, and uh, I wasn't impressed with what I saw. Um, uh, 
it, um, you know, so you can't form an ice sheet <laughs> in a matter of days, and you wouldn't get another ice age in the northern hemisphere. The model is very clear on that. Uh, what you might get would be a small region of cooling in the North Atlantic. Iceland could actually uh, not warm. As the rest of the globe warms, there's a small area in the North Atlantic that might not warm. Um, but, you know, Iceland uh, would have to worry uh, about uh, other impacts of climate change as this played out um, because, you know, no, as the saying goes, no person is an island and no country today. We live in a global world, a global economy where we depend on resources um, and uh, distribution systems uh, of food and, and, and water and other resources uh, uh, from around the world. And um, so if but if that were to happen, um, it could actually, that change in ocean circulation pattern could have some uh, potentially dramatic uh, negative impacts, for example, on fish populations. Because it turns out that ocean circulation pattern and the mixing of waters associated with it uh, along uh, the boundary of the conveyor belt in the, in the Gulf Stream, it's that mixing of waters that leads to high amounts of marine productivity and very productive uh, fisheries in the North Atlantic. And if that ocean circulation pattern were to shut down, uh, we could lose uh, one of the more productive uh, natural fisheries in the world at a time where obviously a growing global population, you know, we, uh, we have a growing global population, we have climate change impacts that are uh, potentially uh, reducing uh, our supply, um, including in this case uh, the supply of fish, uh, if if this uh, if this ocean system ocean circulation system were to break down, um, so all of these factors come together in sort of a perfect storm of of negative consequences for humanity. And the fact is, yeah, there's uncertainty, but in many cases, um, the uncertainty again doesn't appear to be our friend. In the case of the the collapse of the uh, overturning circulation. Uh, the models have predicted that it shouldn't happen. You know, if it were to happen, it wouldn't happen until later this century at the earliest, where we really start to see a dramatic decrease in this ocean circulation pattern. Uh, my co-authors and I published an article last year in the journal uh, Nature Climate Change uh, demonstrating that slowdown in the ocean circulation has probably already begun. Uh, there was probably a fair amount of, of uh, reduction in that ocean circulation system just over the past century. So once again, uh, the data appear uh, to be, you know, the observations uh, seem to be telling us that we're ahead of schedule relative to what the models have predicted. Yeah. So we may not be over the cliff yet, but definitely kind of careening downhill. Right. So uh, one question I guess I have is, is, is around the kind of uncertainty and, you know, how much does this kind of science need to be more at the forefront of public debate. So the, there used to be a debate about does burning fossil fuels cause climate change? And now we know that it, it does. And there's a certain amount of nuance in some of those discussions that is just not worth spending the time on in the lay community. I mean, very we're talking about very minor nuances. When it comes to these thresholds or tipping points, it sounds like part of what you've been saying is that you know the climate activist community is maybe taking it in a too simplistic a way and that it would actually be helpful to have a clear sense of the scientific range of opinion. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, is this one of the areas of climate science that you wish people would pay more attention to? Are there other areas of climate science where you think the public is not keyed in enough uh, in terms of the uncertainties or the range of opinions? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, part of the problem in the discourse is that we've had this false balance where media outlets have ten mainstream media outlets have tended to present this problem as if it's a debate between two camps, one of which is on the side of the what the science actually says, and the other, which is uh, basically on the side that it's a myth that there's no you know, the, the globe isn't warming, the climate change isn't real, and it's not a problem. And that really does a disservice to our public discourse. The fact that the media have tended to portray this as a, a, a debate uh, between, you know, uh, two camps, one of which says climate change is real, the other which says it's not and it's not a problem. When in fact, the real debate, if you look at what scientists are actually saying, the only real debate is about how bad, how bad will it be? Um, and if the media were fairly reflecting where the actual scientific discourse is, then they would be talking about the actual issues where there is uh, debate and uncertainty in the science and what the implications of that debate and that uncertainty actually are. And as we've seen in our conversation thus far, the real implications are that uncertainty is not our friend and that in many cases... Um, the impacts have proven to be greater and to have happened more rapidly than we had predicted just, you know, uh, some years ago. Uh, so if anything, the scientific community has been overly conservative, overly cautious. Um, and the real problem is, uh, in some sense, is, is worse than, you know, the science might have suggested and the scientists might have seemed to suggest, you know, a decade ago. That having been said, there is this other extreme, and we've already talked a little bit about it, the sort of the catastrophists, the, those who, are, who have decided that uh, there's nothing we can do, that uh, we are destined to the destruction of the earth, uh, that we are now into irreversible catastrophic climate change no matter what we do. And that's just as wrong, and it's just as unhelpful. You know, just this last week, there was a video that went semi-viral um, where they claimed that you know the the, the uh, jet stream had crossed the equator, and this signified basically the collapse of Earth's climate system. That this unprecedented thing had happened, and there was just no scientific validity to it at all. The feature that the individuals were referring to wasn't the jet stream. They were referring to uh, cross-equatorial winds that happen very frequently that are part of the natural climate system. Yeah, but, but that looked like a double helix, kind of. So it seemed ultra-scientific. Exactly. Um, in much in the way that climate change denialism often seems very scientific, uh, there is... Um, you know, just like uh, uh, Stephen Colbert, uh, you know, coined the term truthiness. Um, yeah. We could talk about scienceiness, <laughs> mm -hmm. stuff that looks scientific on the surface, but when you scratch beneath the surface, it isn't. But it looks scientific enough to draw a lot of people in and to convince a lot of people that there's really something there. And that, absolutely, um, that video now, I, I think, again, it's gone semi-viral. It has hundreds of thousands of views, um, and many of us. Uh, have been trying to do some damage control um, on Twitter. You know, I, I yep. commented on this quite a bit last week. And, and the point I made is, look, there are a lot, you know, there are enough real reasons and real impacts of climate change on extreme weather to be worried, for us to be worried and for us to be talking about. It doesn't help the discussion to invent specious climate change impacts 
that, you know, again, to some extent, they provide fodder for the denialists. In, in this case, climate change activists who grabbed onto this uh, were to some extent as guilty as climate change deniers of sort of picking and choosing what scientific claims they want to believe. Um, and in, in, in this case, th there was no basis to the, the catastrophic claim that the, the jet stream had you know, undergone this unprecedented uh, change and uh, it uh, signals catastrophe for all of us. There just wasn't any scientific basis to it. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, that, th that thing totally blew up uh, on my Facebook as well and on Twitter. Yep. But, so I guess, you know, I don't want to put a, a metaphor in your mouth, but I'm, I'm thinking that, so you know, part of what you're saying is that it's not black and white, where we've kind of crossed over from one stage to the other, and now it's hopeless. Um, at the same time, you are saying that where there is uncertainty, it's pretty scary. And so it's almost as if we are indeed in this like shades of gray situation without putting a number on how many, but the, the gradient of of the shades here is pretty steep. So that overall, what, what I'm hearing from you actually is it's not quite as bad as the worst case scenario uh, image, the science-ness image makes it out to be, but that actually gives us more reason to act more quickly because there is still time, but the things are happening kind of fast and that the, it really is worth getting, just sort of getting as many feet in the door or kind of getting as many feet moving. I don't know what the right metaphor there is. To really, to really get started on tackling this problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, you know, it really is the case that, you know, there is still time. We are not committed yet to catastrophic uh, changes in climate, you know, civilization-ending changes in climate. But the, the window of opportunity to avert catastrophic climate change is shrinking. Uh, and if you take a sober look at what the science has to say, uh, if you just look at the mainstream science, it's enough to tell us that the cost of inaction, of not doing something right now, is far greater than any reasonable estimated costs of action. So it just makes no sense at all for us not to be incentivizing renewable energy and non-carbon energy and transitioning as rapidly as possible away from a fossil fuel global economy uh, because the cost of not doing that is far greater than any cost of shifting our uh, energy production system. Uh, it's a no-brainer to do that. And if we do that, the good news is the science indicates that there is still time to avert catastrophic uh, warming of the planet. Uh, but we really have to act now. So the truth, in my view, is somewhat nuanced. Um, it's somewhere between the we are already committed to the end of the world no matter what we do and sort of the maybe the middle of the road. Climate change is a problem, but yeah, hey, you know, we can just let the market sort it out on its own. Uh, we'll, you know, just let you know, technological innovation solve the problem on its own. And you hear that sort of language even from people like Bill Gates, who, uh, you know, will argue against the need for market intervention. Um, well, you know, if we don't put a price on carbon, if we don't put a price on the damage that climate change is already having, then we won't, then our, con our rules are not set up to make the right decision. So that damage has to be costed. Um, there has to be a price signal, 
in the economy. We can't just stand, you know, lay back and let technological innovation magically solve this problem on its own. It, it won't. Yeah, we've tried that for 20 years and uh, <laughs> we're still laying back. So That's right. So we have to act and we have to act quickly and we need a price signal. But, you know, we are not yet committed to catastrophe. There, there, we, there is still a definite window of opportunity for us to prevail in this battle. And that's, that's very important for people to understand. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's actually kind of heartwarming to hear uh, from someone like you who has spent so much time really clarifying scientifically how sort of dramatic the situation is, what exactly is going on. But again, there is definitely still time to really turn the corner on this. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. Happy to come back another time. A few weeks ago, I went out to the People Summit in Chicago, hosted by National Nurses United and over 50 different convening organizations, including some environmental groups like 350.org. The summit was a convergence point for supporters of Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. There weren't concrete plans or a single vision presented so much as a general excitement about independent political power. The day before the summit started, Sanders gave a live stream address encouraging his supporters to take on school board and city council races. Again and again during the summit, we heard the same message echoed from the main stage and in workshop sessions. Within a few days of Sanders' address, 20,000 people nationally had pledged to run. And in a survey collected, 800 of the 3,000 attendees at the People's Summit alone said they'd do the same. The other major thread that weekend was that people were really coalescing around a set of progressive policies. Single-payer health care, of course, which has been a big call for the nurses over the last several years, but also things like a $15 minimum wage and some kind of carbon tax. The summit took place a little less than a month out from the Democratic Party's convention, happening at the end of this month in Philadelphia. Several attendees had just come from testifying before the platform committee in Phoenix, and Bill McKibben and Cornell West, who were supposed to be at the summit, were instead tapped by Sanders to serve on the platform committee drafting team, so spent that weekend duking it out with fellow committee members in the Southwest. Climate and the environment have been major sticking points in the drafting process, especially a ban on fracking. Carol Browner, a former Obama administration energy czar, EPA administrator, and current board chair for the League of Conservation Voters, was actually one of the most vocally opposed to passing a moratorium into the platform. So the draft of the platform as it stands now outlines ambitious goals for scaling down emissions rapidly and on a short timeline. The issue, as many have pointed out, is that there's no plan outlined for how to actually get there. At the summit, I talked to filmmaker Josh Fox about the stakes of the platform for the climate and what the Democratic establishment has to say about fracking. The primary thing for me right now is the Democratic establishment's embrace of fracking. And this is now the, the, act, the moment where the climate change movement and the fracking movement collide and converge. Um, the fracking battle in America is not now just about drilling wells, but it's also about the use of net frac gas. Because... Hillary Clinton's proposal of using the natural gas, uh, using that frac gas as a bridge fuel, means building 300 new frac gas power plants around America. That's six per state. Is that right? 300 divided by 50. Anyway, it's a lot. 300 new frac gas power plants. It means uh, probably hundreds of thousands of miles more of pipelines and compressor stations and 
probably two million new fracking wells to service those. And those power plants are not financed for five years or 10 years. They're financed like your house for 30 to 40 years. So in the next four years, a huge regime shift in energy in America will take place from coal to oil and gas. We're turning our electricity generation sector over to frack gas. That's Clinton's bridge fuel argument, and it's insane because frack gas is the worst fuel that we can develop for climate change. So her climate change plan is actually a climate change plan. It just makes climate change worse. Um, and we spent 40 years on the frack gas bridge. The only per- I say this all the time. The only person who wants to spend 40 years on a bridge is Chris Christie. And he's out of the race. Great. Thanks so much, Kate, for that report. So as we wind down, I want to remind uh, our listeners to tweet at us complaints, questions, uh, angry rants, etc. Hashtag hot bothered climate. And Kate, before I go, I wanted to thank you publicly for that beautiful bottle of tequila that you got me as a graduation present when I finally finished my PhD last week. Oh, of course. You know, we all do our part in the service of low carbon leisure. Uh, exactly. And of course, what you mean by that, Kate, I'm sure is, you know, if you're going to buy imported alcohol, you should make sure it's really high proof, high percentage alcohol, so that effectively the carbon footprint of each amount of drunkenness is lower because, you know, it's a lesser amount of alcohol that's being kind of trucked around. You follow me right here? Absolutely. Great. So uh, until next time, Kate, you know, stay hot. Stay bothered. <laughs>